The Weight of Obligation by Rex Beach This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is the story of a burden, the tale of a load that irked a strong man's shoulders. To those who do not know the North, it may seem strange, but to those who understand the humors of men in solitude, and the extravagant vagaries that steal in upon their minds, as fog drifts with the night, it will not appear unusual. There are spirits in the wilderness, eerie forces which play pranks, some droll or whimsical, others grim. Johnny Cantwell and Mortimer Grant were partners, trailmates, brothers in soul, if not in blood. The ebb and flood of frontier life had brought them together. Its hardships had united them until they were as one. They were something of a mystery to each other, neither having surrendered all his confidence, and because of this they retained their mutual attraction. They had met by accident, but they remained together by desire. The spirit of adventure bubbled merrily within them, and it led them into curious byways. It was this which sent them northward from the states in the dead of winter, on the heels of the Stony River strike. It was this which induced them to land at Katmai instead of Iliamna, whither their land journey should have commenced. There are two routes over the coast range, the captain of the Dora told them, and only two. Iliamna Pass is low and easy, but the distance is longer than by way of Katmai. I can land you at either place. Katmai is pretty tough, isn't it? Grant inquired. We've understood it to be the worst pass in Alaska. Cantwell's eyes were eager. It's awful. Nobody travels it except natives, and they don't like it. Now, Iliamna, we'll try Katmai, eh, Mort? Sure. They don't come hard enough for us, Cap. We'll see if it's as bad as it's painted. So, one gray January morning, they were landed on a frozen beach. Their outfit was flung ashore through the surf. The lifeboat pulled away, and the Dora disappeared after a farewell toot of her whistle. Their last glimpse of her showed the captain waving goodbye, and the purser flapping a red tablecloth at them from the afterdeck. Cheerful place, this, Grant remarked, as he noted the desolate surroundings of dune and hillside. The beach itself was black and raw where the surf washed it, but elsewhere all was white, save for the thickets of alder and willow which protruded nakedly. The bay was little more than a hollow scooped out of the Alaskan range. Along the foothills behind, there was a belt of spruce and cottonwood and birch. It was a lonely and apparently unpeopled wilderness in which they had been set down. "'Seems good to be back in the north again, doesn't it?' said Cantwell cheerily. "'I'm tired of the booze and the streetcars and the dames and all that civilized stuff.' I'd rather be broke in Alaska, with you, than a banker's son back home. Soon a globular Russian half-breed, a Katmai trader, appeared among the dunes, and with him were some native villagers. That night the partners slept in a snug log cabin, the roof of which was chained down with old ship's cables. Petalin, the fat little trader, explained that Roos and Katmai had a way of sailing off to seaward when the wind blew. He listened to their plan of crossing the divide, and nodded. It could be done, of course, he agreed, but they were foolish to try it, when the Iliamna route was open. Still, now that they were here, he would find dogs for them, and a guide. 
The village hunters were out after meat, however, and until they returned the white men would need to wait in patience. There followed several days of idleness, during which Cantwell and Grant amused themselves around the village, teasing the squaws, playing games with the boys, and flirting harmlessly with the girls, one of whom, in particular, was not unattractive. She was perhaps three-quarters alute, the other quarter being plain coquette, and, having been educated at the town of Kodiak, she knew the ways and the wiles of the white man. Cantwell approached her, and she met his extravagant advances more than halfway. They were getting along nicely together when Grant, in a spirit of fun, entered the game and won her fickle smiles for himself. He joked his partner unmercifully, and Johnny accepted defeat gracefully, never giving the matter a second thought. When the hunters returned, dogs were bought, a guide was hired, and a week after landing, the friends were camped at the timberline awaiting a favorable moment for their dash across the range. Above them, white hillsides rose in irregular leaps to the gash in the sawtooth barrier which formed the pass. Below them, a short valley led down the Katmai and the sea. The day was bright, the air clear. Nevertheless, after the guide had stared up the peaks for a time, he shook his head, then re-entered the tent and lay down. The mountains were smoking. From their top streamed the Gossamer Veil, which the travelers knew to be drifting snow clouds, carried by the wind. It meant delay, but they were patient. They were up and going on the following morning, however, with the Indian in the lead. There was no trail. The hills were steep. In places they were forced to unload the sled and hoist their outfit by means of ropes, and as they mounted higher, the snow deepened. It lay like loose sand, only lighter. It shoved ahead of the sled in a feathery mass. The dogs wallowed in it and were unable to pull, hence the greater part of the work devolved upon the men. Once above the foothills and into the range proper, the going became more level, but the snow remained knee-deep. The Indian broke trail stolidly. The partners strained at the sled, which hung back like a leaden thing. By afternoon, the dogs had become disheartened and refused to heed the whip. There was neither fuel nor running water, and therefore the party did not pause for luncheon. The men were sweating profusely from their exertions, and had long since become parched with thirst. But the dry snow was like chalk, and scoured their throats. Cantwell was the first to show the effects of his unusual exertions for not only had he assumed a lion's share of the work, but the last few months of easy living had softened his muscles, and in consequence his vitality was quickly spent. His undergarments were drenched, he was fearfully dry inside, a terrible thirst seemed to penetrate his whole body. He was forced to rest frequently. Grant eyed him with some concern, finally inquiring, Feel bad, Johnny? Cantwell nodded. Their fatigue made both men economical of language. What's the matter? Thirsty. The former could barely speak. There won't be any water till we get across. You'll have to stand it. They resumed their duties. The Indians swish-swished ahead, as if wading through a sea of swans down. The dogs followed listlessly. The partners leaned against the stubborn load. A faint breath finally came out of the north causing Grant and the guide to study the sky anxiously. Cantwell was too weary to heed the increasing cold. The snow on the slopes above began to move. Here and there, on exposed ridges, 
It rose in clouds and puffs. The clean-cut outlines of the hills became obscured as by fog. The languid wind bit cruelly. After a time, Johnny fell back upon the sled and exclaimed, I'm all in, Mort. Don't seem to have the guts. He was pale. His eyes were tortured. He scooped a mitten full of snow and raised it to his lips, then spat it out, still dry. Here, brace up. In a panic of apprehension at this collapse, Grant shook him. He had never known Johnny to fail like this. Take a drink. It'll do you good. He drew a bottle from one of the dunnage bags, and Cantwell seized it avidly. It was wet. It would quench his thirst, he thought. Before Mort could check him, he had drunk a third of the contents. The effect was almost instantaneous, for Cantwell's stomach was empty, and his tissues seemed to absorb the liquor like a dry sponge. His fatigue fell away. He became suddenly strong and vigorous again. But before he had gone a hundred yards, the reaction followed. First his mind grew thick. Then his limbs became unmanageable, and his muscles flabby. He was drunk, yet it was a strange and dangerous intoxication, against which he struggled desperately. He fought it for perhaps a quarter of an hour before it mastered him. Then he gave up. Both men knew that stimulants are never taken on the trail, but they had never stopped to reason why, and even now they did not attribute Johnny's breakdown to the brandy. After a while he stumbled and fell. Then, the cool snow being grateful to his face, he sprawled there motionless until Mort dragged him to the sled. He stared at his partner in perplexity and laughed foolishly. The wind was increasing, darkness was near, and they had not yet reached the bearing slope. Something in the drunken man's face frightened Grant, and extracting a ship's biscuit from the grub box, he said hurriedly, Here, Johnny, get something under your belt, quick. Cantwell obediently munched the hard cracker, but there was no moisture on his tongue. His throat was paralyzed. The crumbs crowded themselves from the corners of his lips. He tried with limber fingers to stuff them down, or to assist the muscular action of swallowing, but finally expelled them in a cloud. Mort drew the parka hood over his partner's head, for the wind cut like a scythe, and the dogs were turning tail to it, digging holes in the snow for protection. The air about them was like yeast. The light was fading. The Indian snowshoed his way back, advising a quick camp until the storm abated. But to this suggestion, Grant refused to listen, knowing only too well the peril of such a course. Nor did he dare take Johnny on the sled, since the fellow was half asleep already, but instead whipped up the dogs and urged his companion to follow as best he could. When Cantwell fell for a second time, he returned, dragged him forward, and tied his wrist firmly, yet loosely, to the load. The storm was pouring over them now like water out of a spout. It seared and blinded them. Its touch was like that of a flame. Nevertheless, they struggled on into the smother, making what headway they could. The Indian led, pulling at the end of a rope. Grant strained at the sled and hoarsely encouraged the dogs. Cantwell stumbled and lurched in the rear like an unwilling prisoner. When he fell, his companion lifted him, then beat him, cursed him, tried in every way to rouse him from his lethargy. After an interminable time, they found they were descending, and this gave them heart to plunge ahead more rapidly. The dogs began to trot as the sled overran them. They rushed blindly into gullies, fetching up at the bottom in a tangle. 
and Johnny followed in a nerveless, stupefied condition. He was dragged like a sack of flour, for his legs were limp, and he lacked muscular control. But every dash, every fall, every quick descent, drove the sluggish blood through his veins, and cleared his brain momentarily. Such moments were fleeting, however. Much of the time, his mind was a blank, and it was only by a mechanical effort that he fought off unconsciousness. He had vague memories of many beatings at Mort's hands, of the slippery, clean-swept ice of a stream over which he limply skidded, of being carried into a tent where a candle flickered and a stove roared. Grant was holding something hot to his lips, and then... It was morning. He was weak and sick. He felt as if he had awakened from a hideous dream. I played out, didn't I? he queried, wonderingly. You sure did, Grant laughed. It was a tight squeak, old boy. I never thought I'd get you through. Played out. I can't understand it. Cantwell prided himself on his strength and stamina. Therefore the truth was unbelievable. He and Mort had long been partners, and they had given and taken much at each other's hands. But this was something altogether different. Grant had saved his life, at risk of his own. The older man's endurance had been the greater, and he had used it to good advantage. It embarrassed Johnny tremendously to realize that he had proved unequal to his share of the work, for he had never before experienced such an obligation. He apologized repeatedly during the few days he lay sick, and meanwhile Mort waited upon him like a mother. Cantwell was relieved when at last they had abandoned camp, changed guides at the next village, and were on their way along the coast. For somehow he felt very sensitive about his collapse. He was, in fact, extremely ashamed of himself. Once he had fully recovered, he had no further trouble, but soon rounded into fit condition and showed no effects of his ordeal. Day after day, he and Mort traveled through the solitudes, their isolation broken only by occasional glimpses of native villages, where they rested briefly and renewed their supply of dog feed. But although the younger man was now as well and strong as ever, he was uncomfortably conscious that his trailmate regarded him as the weaker of the two, and shielded him in many ways. Grant performed most of the unpleasant tasks, and occasionally cautioned Johnny about overdoing. This protective attitude at first amused, and then offended Cantwell. It galled him until he was upon the point of voicing his resentment, but reflected that he had no right to object, for, judging by past performances, he had proved his inferiority. This uncomfortable realization forever arose to prevent open rebellion, but he asserted himself secretly by robbing Grant of his self-appointed tasks. He rose first in the mornings. He did the cooking. He lengthened his turns ahead of the dogs. He mended harnesses after the day's hike had ended. Of course the older man objected, and for a time they had a good-natured rivalry as to who should work and who should rest. Only it was not quite so good-natured on Cantwell's part as he made it appear. Mort broke out in friendly irritation one day. Don't try to do everything, Johnny. Remember I'm no cripple. Huh. You prove that. I guess it's up to me to do your work. Oh, forget that day on the pass, can't you? Johnny grunted a second time, and from his tone it was evident that he would never forget, unpleasant though the memory remained. Sensing his sullen resentment, the other tried to rally him, but made a bad job of it. The humor of men in the open is not delicate, 
their wit and their words become coarsened in direct proportion as they revert to the primitive. It is one of the effects of the solitudes. Grant spoke extravagantly, mockingly of his own superiority, in a way which ordinarily would have brought a smile to Cantwell's lips. But the latter did not smile. He taunted Johnny humorously on his lack of physical prowess, his lack of good looks and manly qualities, something which had never failed to result in a friendly exchange of bandage. He even teased him about his defeat with the Katmai girl. Cantwell did respond finally, but afterward he found himself wondering if Mort could have been in earnest. He dismissed the thought with some impatience. But men on the trail have too much time for their thoughts. There is nothing in the monotonous routine of the day's work to distract them. So the partner who played out dwelt more and more upon his debt, and upon his friend's easy assumption of preeminence. The weight of obligation began to chafe him, lightly at first, but with ever-increasing discomfort. He began to think that Grant honestly considered himself the better man, merely because chance had played into his hands. It was silly, even childish, to dwell upon the subject, he reflected, and yet he could not banish it from his mind. It was always before him, in one form or another. He felt the strength in his lean muscles, and sneered at the thought that Mort should be deceived. If it came to a physical test, he felt sure he could break his slighter partner with his bare hands. And as for endurance, well, he was hungry for a chance to demonstrate it. They talked little. Men seldom converse in the waste, for there is something about the silence of the wilderness which discourages speech. And no land is so grimly silent, so hushed and soundless, as the frozen north. For days they marched through desolation, without glimpse of human habitation, without sight of track or trail, without sound of a human voice to break the monotony. There was no game in the country, with the exception of occasional bird or rabbit, nothing but the white hills, the fringe of alder tops along the watercourses, and the thickets of gnarled, unhealthy spruce in the smothered valleys. Their destination was a mysterious stream at the headwaters of the unmet Cushiquim, where rumor said there was gold, and whither they feared other men were hastening from the mining country far to the north. Now it is a penalty of the white country that men shall think of women. Cantwell began to brood upon the Katmai girl, for she was the last. Her eyes were haunting, and distance had worked its usual enchantment. He reflected that Mort had shouldered him aside and won her favor, then boasted of it. Johnny awoke one night with a dream of her, and lay quivering. She was only a squaw, he said half aloud, if I'd really tried. Grant lay beside him, snoring, the heat of their bodies intermingled. The waking man tried to compose himself, but his partner's stertorous breathing irritated him beyond measure. For a long time he remained motionless, staring into the gray blur of the tent-top. He had played out. He owed his life to the man who had cheated him of the Katmai girl, and that man knew it. He had become a weak, helpless thing, dependent upon another man's strength, and that other now accepted his superiority as a matter of course. The obligation was insufferable, and it was unjust. The North had played him a devilish trick, it had betrayed him. It had bound him to his benefactor with chains of gratitude which were irksome. Had they been real chains, they could have galled him no more than at this moment. As time passed, the men spoke less frequently to each other. Grant joshed his mate roughly once or twice, 
masking beneath an assumption of jocularity his own vague irritation at the change that had come over them. It was as if he had probed at the open wound with clumsy fingers. Cantwell had by this time assumed most of those petty camp tasks which provoke tired trailers, those humdrum duties which are so trying to exhausted nerves, and, of course, they wore upon him as they wear upon every man. But, once he had taken them over, he began to resent Grant's easy relinquishment. It rankled him to realize how willingly the other allowed him to do the cooking, the dishwashing, the fire-building, the bed-making. Little monotonies of this kind form the hardest part of winter travel. They are the rocks upon which friendship's founder and partnerships are wrecked. Out on the trail, nature equalizes the work to a great extent, and no man can shirk unduly. But in camp, inside the cramped confines of a tent pitched on boughs laid over the snow, it is very different. There one must busy himself while the other rests, and keeps his legs out of the way if possible. One man sits on the bedding at the rear of the shelter and shivers, while the other squats over a tantalizing fire of green wood, blistering his face and parboiling his limbs inside his sweaty clothing. Dishes must be passed, food divided, and it is poor food, poorly prepared at best. Sometimes men criticize and voice longings for better grub and better cooking. Remarks of this kind have been known to result in tragedies, bitter words and flaming curses, then perhaps wild actions, memories of which the later years can never erase. It is but one prank of the wilderness, one grim manifestation of its silent forces. Had Grant been unable to do his part, Cantwell would have willingly accepted the added burden. But Mort was able. He was nimble and handy. He was the better cook of the two. In fact, he was the better man in every way, or so he believed. Cantwell sneered at the last thought, and the memory of his debt was like a bitter medicine. His resentment, in reality nothing more than a phase of insanity begot of isolation and silence, could not help but communicate itself to his companion, and there resulted in a mutual antagonism, which grew into a dislike, then festered into something more, something strange, reasonless, yet terribly vivid and amazingly potent for evil. Neither man ever mentioned it. Their tongues were clenched between their teeth, and they held themselves in check with harsh hands. But it was constantly in their minds, nevertheless. No man who has not suffered the manifold irritations of such an intimate association can appreciate the gnawing clanker of animosity like this. It was dangerous because there was no relief from it. The two were bound together as by gyres. They shared each other's every action, and every plan. They trod in each other's tracks, slept in the same bed, ate from the same plate. They were like prisoners ironed to the same staple. Each fought the obsession in his own way, but it is hard to fight the impalpable. Hence their sick fancies grew in spite of themselves. Their minds needed food to prey upon, but found none. Each began to criticize the other silently, to sneer at his weaknesses, to meditate derisively upon his peculiarities. After a time they no longer resented the advance of these poisonous thoughts, but welcomed it. On more than one occasion the embers of their wrath were upon the point of bursting into flame, but each realized that the first ill-considered word would serve to slip the leash from those demons that were straining to go free, and so managed to restrain himself. The crisis came one crisp morning, when a dog team whirled around a bend in the river and a white man hailed them. He was the mail carrier, on his way out from Nome, and he brought news of the inside. 
"'Where are you boys bound for?' he inquired, when greetings were over and gossip of the trail had passed. "'We're going to the Stony River Strike,' Grant told him. "'Stony River? Up the Cushiquim?' "'Yes.' The mailman laughed. "'Can you beat that? Ain't you heard about Stony River?' "'No.' "'Why, it's a fake. No such place.' There was a silence. The partners avoided each other's eyes. "'McDonald, the fellow that started it, is on his way to Dawson. There's a gang after him, too, and if he's caught it'll go hard with him. He wrote the letters to himself and spread the news just to raise a grubstake. He cleaned up big before they got onto him. He peddled his tips for real money.' "'Yes,' Grant spoke quietly. "'Johnny bought one. That's what brought us from Seattle.' We went out on the last boat and figured we'd come up from this side before the breakup. So, fake. Gee, you fellers bit good. The mail carrier shook his head. Well, you better keep going now. You'll get to Nome before the season opens. Better take dogfish from Bethel. It's four bits a pound on the Yukon. Sorry I didn't hit your camp last night. We'd have had a visit. Tell the gang you saw me. He shook hands ceremoniously yelled at his panting dogs, and went swiftly on his way, waving a mitten on high as he vanished around the next bend. The partners watched him go. Then Grant turned to Johnny and repeated, Fake. MacDonald stung you. Cantwell's face went as white as the snow behind him. His eyes blazed. Why did you tell him I bit? he demanded harshly. Huh. Didn't you bite? Two thousand miles afoot. Three months of Hades for nothing. That's biting some. Well, the speaker's face was convulsed, and Grant's flamed with an answering anger. They glared at each other for a moment. Don't blame me. You fell for it, too. I? Mort checked his rushing words. Yes, you. Now what are you going to do about it, Welsh? I'm going through to Nome. The sight of his partner's rage has set Mort to shaking with a furious desire to fly at his throat but fortunately he retained a spark of sanity. Then shut up and quit chewing the rag. You talk too much. Mort's eyes were bloodshot. They fell upon the carbine under the sled lashings and lingered there, then wavered. He opened his lips, reconsidered, spoke softly to the team, then lifted the heavy dog whip and smote the Malamutes with all his strength. The men resumed their journey without further words, but each was cursing inwardly. So, I talk too much, Grant thought. The accusation struck in his mind, and he determined to speak no more. He blames me, Cantwell reflected bitterly. I'm in the wrong again, and he couldn't keep his mouth shut. A fine partner he is. All day they plodded on, neither trusting himself to speak. They ate their evening meal like mutes. They avoided each other's eyes. Even the guide noticed a change and looked on curiously. There were two robes, and these the partners shared nightly, but their hatred had grown so during the past few hours that the thought of lying side by side, limb to limb, was distasteful. Yet neither dared suggest a division of the bedding, for that would have brought further words and resulted in the crash which they longed for but feared. They stripped off their furs and laid down beside each other with the same repugnance they would have felt had there been a serpent in the couch. This unending malevolent silence became terrible. The strain of it increased, for each man now had something definite to cherish in the words and the looks that had passed. They divided the camp work with scrupulous nicety, 
each man waited upon himself and asked no favors. The knowledge of his debt forever chafed Cantwell. Grant resented his companion's lack of gratitude. Of course they spoke occasionally. It was beyond human endurance to remain entirely dumb. But they conversed in monosyllables, about trivial things, and their voices were throaty, as if the effect choked them. Meanwhile, they continued to glow inwardly at a white heat. Cantwell no longer felt the desire merely to match his strength against Grant's. The estrangement had become too wide for that. A physical victory would have been flat and tasteless. He craved some deeper satisfaction. He began to think of the axe, just how or when or why he never knew. It was a thin-bladed, polished thing of frosty steel, and the more he thought of it, the stronger grew his impulse to rid himself once and for all of that presence which exasperated him. It would be very easy, he reasoned, a sudden blow, with the weight of his shoulders behind it. He fancied he could feel the bit sink into Grant's flesh, cleaving bone and cartilage in its course. A slanted downward stroke aimed at the neck where it joined the body, and he would be forever satisfied. It would be ridiculously simple. He practiced in the gloom of the evening as he felled spruce trees for firewood. He guarded the axe religiously. It became a living thing which urged him on to violence. He saw it standing by the tent fly when he closed his eyes to sleep. He dreamed of it. He sought it out with his eyes when he first awoke. He slid it loosely under the sled lashings every morning, thinking that its use could no longer be delayed. As for Grant, the carbine dwelt forever in his mind, and his fingers itched for it. He secretly slipped a cartridge into the chamber, and when an occasional ptarmigan offered itself for a target, he saw the white spot on the breast of Johnny's reindeer parka, dancing ahead of the lyman bead. The solitude had done its work. The North played its grim comedy to the final curtain, making sport of men's affections and turning love to rankling hate. But into the mind of each man crept a certain craftiness. Each longed to strike, but feared to face the consequences. It was lonesome, here among the white hills and the deadly silences, yet they reflected that it would be still more lonesome if they were left to keep step with nothing more substantial than a memory. They determined, therefore, to wait until civilization was nearer, meanwhile rehearsing the moment they knew was inevitable. Over and over in their thoughts, each of them enacted the scene, ending it always with a picture of a prostrate man and a patch of trampled snow, which grew crimson as the other gloated. They paused at Bethel Mission long enough to load the dried salmon, then made the ninety-mile portage over the lake and tundra to the Yukon. There they got their first touch of the inside world. They camped in a bare bore where white men had slept a few nights before, and heard their own language spoken by native tongues. The time was growing short now, and they purposely dismissed their guide, knowing that the trail was plain from there on. When they hitched up on the next morning, Cantwell placed the axe bit down between the tarpaulin and the sled rail, leaving the helve projecting where his hand could reach it. Grant thrust the barrel of the rifle beneath a lashing, with the butt close by the handlebars, and it was loaded. A mile from the village they were overtaken by an Indian and a squaw, traveling light behind hungry dogs. The natives attached themselves to the white men and hung stubbornly to their heels, taking advantage of their tracks. When night came they camped alongside, in the hope of food. 
they announced that they were bound for St. Michael's, and in spite of every effort to shake them off, they remained close behind the partners until that point was reached. At St. Michael's, there were white men, practically the first Johnny and Mord had encountered since landing at Katmai, and for a day at least they were sane. But there were still three hundred miles to be traveled, three hundred miles of solitude and haunting thoughts. Just as they were about to start, Cantwell came upon Grant and the A.C. agent and heard his name pronounced, also the word Katmai. He noticed that Mort fell silent at his approach, and instantly his anger blazed afresh. He decided that the latter had been telling the story of their experience on the pass and the boasting of his service. So much the better, he thought, in a blind rage. That which he planned doing would appear all the more like an accident, for who would dream that a man could kill the person to whom he owed his life? That night he waited for a chance. They were camped in a dismal hut on a windswept shore. They were alone. But Grant was waiting also, it seemed. They lay down beside each other, ostensibly to sleep. Their limbs touched, the warmth from their bodies intermingled, but they did not close their eyes. They were up and away early, with Nome drawing rapidly nearer. They had skirted an ocean, foot by foot. Bering Sea lay behind them now, and this northern shore swung westward to their goal. For two months they had lived in silent animosity, feeding on bitter food while their elbows rubbed. Noon found them floundering through one of those unheralded storms which made coast travel so hazardous. The morning had turned off gray. The sky was of a leaden hue, which blended perfectly with the snow underfoot. There was no horizon. It was impossible to see more than a few yards in any direction. The trail soon became obliterated, and their eyes began to play tricks. For all they could distinguish, they might have been suspended in space. They seemed to be treading the measure of an endless dance in the center of a whirling cloud. Of course it was cold, for the wind off the open sea was damp. But they were not men to turn back. They soon discovered that their difficulty lay not in facing the storm, but in holding to the trail. That narrow two-foot causeway, packed by a winter's travel and frozen into a ribbon of ice by winter's frost, afforded their only avenue of progress. For the moment they left it, the sled plowed into the loose snow, well-nigh disappearing and bringing the dogs to a standstill. It was the duty of the driver in such cases to wallow forward, right the load if necessary, and lift it back into place. These mishaps were forever occurring, for it was impossible to distinguish the trail beneath its soft covering. However, if the driver's task was hard, it was no more trying than that of the man ahead, who was compelled to feel out and explore the ridge of hardened snow and ice with his feet, after the fashion of a man walking a plank in the dark. Frequently he lunged into the drifts with one foot, or both, his glazed muckluck sole slid about, causing him to bestride the invisible hogback, or again his legs crossed awkwardly, throwing him off his balance. At times, he wandered away from the path entirely, and had to search it out again. These exertions were very wearing, and they were dangerous also, for joints are easily dislocated, muscles twisted, and tendons strained. Hour after hour, the march continued unrelieved by any change, unbroken by any speck or spot of color. The nerves of their eyes, wearied by constant nearsighted peering at the snow, began to jump, 
so that vision became untrustworthy. Both travelers appreciated the necessity of clinging to the trail, for once they lost it, they knew they might wander about indefinitely until they chanced to regain it, or found their way to the shore, while always to seaward was the menace of open water, of air holes, or cracks which might gape beneath their feet like jaws. Immersion in this temperature, no matter how brief, meant death. The monotony of progress through this unreal, leaden world became almost unbearable. The repeated strainings and twistings they suffered in walking the slippery ridge reduced the men to weariness. Their legs grew clumsy and their feet uncertain. Had they found a camping place, they would have stopped. But they dared not forsake the thin thread that linked them with safety to go look for one now, not knowing where the shore lay. In storms of this kind, men have lain in their sleeping bags for days within a stone's throw of a roadhouse or village. Bodies have been found within a hundred yards of shelter after blizzards have abated. Cantwell and Grant had no choice, therefore, except to bore into the welter of drifting flakes. It was late in the afternoon when the latter met with an accident. Johnny, who had taken a spell at the rear, heard him cry out, saw him stagger, struggle to hold his footing, then sink into the snow. The dogs paused instantly, lay down, and began to strip the ice pellets from between their toes. Cantwell spoke harshly, leaning upon the handlebars. Well, what's the idea? It was the longest sentence of the day. I hurt myself. Mort's voice was thin and strange. He raised himself to a sitting posture and reached beneath his parka, then lay back weakly. He writhed. His face was twisted with pain. He continued to lie there, doubled into a knot of suffering. A groan was wrenched from between his teeth. Hurt? How? Johnny inquired dully. It seemed very ridiculous to see that strong man kicking around in the snow. I've ripped something loose. Here. Mort's palms were pressed in upon his groin. His fingers were clutching something. Ruptured, I guess. He tried again to rise, but sank back. His cap had fallen off, and his forehead glistened with sweat. Cantwell went forward and lifted him. It was the first time in many days that their hands had touched, and the sensation affected him strangely. He struggled to repress a devilish mirth at the thought that Grant had played out. It amounted to that and nothing less. The trail had delivered him into his enemy's hands. His hour had struck. Johnny determined to square the debt now, once and for all, and wipe his own mind clean of that poison which corroded it. His muscles were strong, his brain clear. He had never felt his strength so irresistible as at this moment, while Mort, for all his boasted superiority, was nothing but a nerveless thing hanging limp against his breast. Providence had arranged it all. The younger man was impelled to give raucous voice to his glee, and yet his helpless burden exerted an odd effect upon him. He deposited his foe upon the sled and stared at the face he had not met for many days. He saw how white it was, how wet and cold, how weak and dazed. Then as he looked, he cursed inwardly, for the triumph of his moment was spoiled. The axe was there. Its polished bit showed like a piece of ice. Its helve protruded handily. But there was no need of it now. His fingers were all the weapons Johnny needed. They were more than sufficient, in fact, for Mort was like a child.
Cantwell was a strong man, and although the North had coarsened him, yet underneath the surface was a chivalrous regard for all things weak, and this the trail madness had not affected. He had longed for this instant, but now that it had come he felt no enjoyment, since he could not harm a sick man, and waged no war on cripples. Perhaps when Mort had rested, they could settle their quarrel. This was as good a place as any. The storm hid them. They would leave no traces. There could be no interruption. But Mort did not rest. He could not walk. Movement brought excruciating pain. Finally Cantwell heard himself saying, Better wrap up and lie still for a while. I'll get the dogs under way. His words amazed him dully. They were not at all what he had intended to say. The injured man demurred, but the other insisted gruffly, then brought him his mittens and cap, slapping the snow out of them before rousing the team to motion. The load was very heavy now, the dogs had no footprints to guide them, and it required all of Cantwell's efforts to prevent capsizing. Night approached swiftly, the whirling snow particles continued to flow past upon the wind, shrouding the earth in an impenetrable pall. The journey soon became a terrible ordeal, a slow, halting progress that led nowhere, and was accomplished at the cost of tremendous exertion. Time after time Johnny broke trail, then returned and urged the huskies forward to the end of his tracks. When he lost the path, he sought it out, laboriously hoisted the sledge back into place, and coaxed his four-footed helpers to renewed effort. He was drenched with perspiration. His inner garments were steaming. His outer ones were frozen into a coat of armor. When he paused, he chilled rapidly. His vision was untrustworthy also, and he felt snow blindness coming on. Grant begged him more than once to unroll the bedding and prepare to sleep out the storm. He even urged Johnny to leave him and make a dash for his own safety, but at this the younger man cursed and told him to hold his tongue. Night found the lone driver slipping, plunging, lurching ahead of the dogs or shoving at the handlebars and shouting at the dogs. Finally, during a pause for rest, he heard a sound which roused him. Out of the gloom to the right came the faint complaining howl of a malamute. It was answered by his own dogs, and the next moment they had caught a scent which swerved them shoreward and led them scrambling through the drifts. Two hundred yards and a steep bank loomed above, up and over which they rushed, with Cantwell yelling encouragement. Then a light showed, and they were in the lee of a low-roofed hut. A sick native, huddled over a Yukon stove, made them welcome to his mean abode, explaining that his wife and son had gone to Unalaklik for supplies. Johnny carried his partner to the one unoccupied bunk and stripped his clothes from him. With his own hands he rubbed the warmth back into Mortimer's limbs, then swiftly prepared hot food, and holding him in the hollow of his aching arm, fed him a little at a time. He was like to drop from exhaustion, but he made no complaint. With one folded robe he made the hardboards comfortable, then spread the other as a covering. For himself he sat beside the fire and fought his weariness. When he dozed off and the cold awakened him, he renewed the fire. He heated beef tea and, rousing Mort, fed it to him with a teaspoon. All night long, at intervals, he tended the sick man, and Grant's eyes followed him with an expression that brought a fierce pain to Cantwell's throat. "'You're mighty good, after the rotten way I acted,' the former whispered once. And Johnny's big hand trembled, so that he spilled the broth. 
His voice was low and tender as he inquired, Are you resting easier now? The other nodded. Maybe you're not hurt badly after all. God, that would be awful. Cantwell choked, turned away, and raising his arms against the log wall, buried his face in them. The morning broke clear. Grant was sleeping. As Johnny stiffly mounted the creek bank with a bucket of water, he heard a jingle of sleigh bells and saw a sled with two white men swing in towards the cabin. Hello, he called, then heard his own name pronounced. Johnny Cantwell, by all that's holy. The next moment he was shaking hands vigorously with two old friends from Nome. Martin and me are bound for St. Mike's, one of them explained. Where the deuce did you come from, Johnny? The outside. Started for Stony River, but... Stony River? The newcomers began to laugh loudly, and Cantwell joined them. It was the first time he had laughed for weeks. He realized the fact with a start, then recollected also his sleeping partner and said, Shh! Mortson sighed, asleep. During the night everything had changed for Johnny Cantwell. His mental attitude, his hatred, his whole reasonless insanity. Everything was different now, even his debt was cancelled. The weight of obligation was removed and his diseased fancies were completely cured. Yes, Stony River, he repeated, grinning broadly. I bit. Martin burst forth gleefully. They caught MacDonald at Holy Cross and ran him out on a limb. He'll never start another stampede. Old Man Baker gun-branded him. What's the matter with Mort? inquired the second traveler. He's resting up. Yesterday during the storm he... Johnny was upon the point of saying played out, but changed it to had an accident. We thought it was serious, but a few days' rest will bring him around all right. He saved me at Katmai, coming in. I petered out and threw up my tail, but he got me through. Come inside and tell him the news. Sure thing. Well, well, Martin said. So you and Mort are still partners, eh? Still partners? Johnny took up the pail of water. Well, rather, we'll always be partners. His voice was young and full and hearty as he continued. Why, Mort's the best fellow in the world. I'd lay down my life for him. End of The Weight of Obligation by Rex Beach Recorded by James Christopher JXChristopher at Yahoo.com July 2010